Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. For his, div- his divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that through these we have been given, he has given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We are reminded that your word was in your thinking from eternity past, that it was not something that you revealed here and there because it was you were responding to some circumstance or situation, but that this had always been your plan and your design, and that it was God the Holy Spirit who moved the prophets and the apostles in order to guide them in the writing of Scripture so that Paul could accurately say that Scripture was breathed out by you and that it is profitable, it is sufficient, it is it prepares us for every issue of life, that your word is going to uh, convict us, it's going to rebuke us, it's going to teach us, and it's going to give us instruction in the way of righteousness. It's not designed to make us feel good, but to help us to understand the truth and reality, our need for your grace, and our need to depend upon you. But it is your word that always refreshes and encourages us. So we thank you that we have it, that we can proclaim it clearly, and that we can study it, and that God the Holy Spirit who revealed it will help us to understand it and apply it in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're continuing a study in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And this morning, as is my common practice and has been for decades on Sunday morning as I get up, I'll have my breakfast and then I sit and drink coffee and I read through the scriptures and I'll read some other things maybe. And to this morning, I had my iPad out. That's how I normally read on, on every morning. But I'm reading, I was looking at my Logos Bible software app on my iPad, and and um, I always freak these people out who are giving me instruction. They say, you have so many panels open. I said, there's so many books to read. And as I was looking for my panel on Ephesians for the morning, I saw that next to it I have open uh, Lewis Berry Chafer's commentary on Ephesians, which he wrote around 1918 or 1919. And I thought, well, I'm going to read what he has to say about this passage because I like looking at these older dispensationalists because they, they will bring out certain factors and features that are, uh, that, that really reflect the importance of the church. And if you've been among, in, in Christianity, some of you for a very, very long time, Others of you are new, but among dispensational 
Bible teachers, Ephesians has always been sort of the queen book of the Bible, and many have taught it several times. There were some hyper-dispensationalists. These are folks that don't believe the church began in Acts 1. Some believe it was in Acts 7, and some believe it was uh, later on, and some believe it's even after the close of Acts, and I don't agree with any of those positions. But some of those pastors, and I have known some, there are some that will never teach anything but Paul's four prison epistles because the church didn't start until after the close of Acts, so they're just going to deal with those end epistles. There are others who will who will teach only Paul's epistles, and there are others who will only teach the New Testament. But we need the whole counsel of God. Scripture, say, scripture teaches us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture, and at the time that Paul wrote that, He's primarily talking about the Old Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And we live in a world today when it's rare to find teachers, pastors in the pulpit who are really teaching the Bible. And among those, there are those who don't teach verse by verse. There is one um, one man I know who is a graduate of uh, Dallas Seminary, and his father's a very famous pastor, and he is in another city in this country. And he, he is at the vanguard of the modern false teacher. And he says, don't study the Old Testament. You don't need to know the Old Testament. You don't need to read the Old Testament. And he, you don't even need to teach verse by verse. That's just too easy. I don't, you know, but the problem is when you teach by topic and subject all the time. You're just riding your own personal hobby horses. You're not going through the word. When you go through the word verse by verse, you're going to touch on every subject eventually, the ones you don't really want to talk about and the ones that you do want to talk about, but people will hear the whole counsel of God. And we believe that every word is breathed out by God and that every word is important to study. Not every word has equal significance for us today, but every word is breathed out by God and we need to study it and analyze it. And as I was reading uh, the one paragraph I read in Chafer this morning, it triggered a line of thinking the conclusion of which I'm going to be focusing on tonight, but it has absolutely nothing to do with, it seems, with what I originally read in Chafer. It just triggered a line of, of thinking. And so we're going to start off a little bit by going back to the beginning of, uh, of Ephesians 4.1. But all of this verse is really focusing on where I ended last time, which was identifying the meaning of the called. And if you remember, I said this is commonly understood, and I think I've taught it this way in the past, as referring to Christians as those who have been invited to salvation. But once you study the uses of this phrase, there are certain things that are commonalities to all of them. One is that it always has the uh, article in front of it in, in the Greek, which indicates that that the writer is using this as more of a technical term. And a second thing that we saw in looking at it is that this is a term that, at least in one very clear passage in 1 Corinthians, 
it describes a person's vocation. It, it describes their vocation, which is their life's work. And so when we look at this idea of the called, it is really a reference to all that we are, our identity, all that we are in Christ, all that we have been given in Christ. And what I began to look at is something I sort of flew past last time, but I think has great significance for reinforcing that idea that what Paul is emphasizing all through this part is that we must understand that we have been given a new identity in Christ. We've been given a new position in Christ. And that with that new identity and that new position in Christ, there comes an, a responsibility and an obligation to live a certain way. And a lot of people get the idea that, well, I don't really need to study the Bible that much. I don't really need to do all of these things because I'm complete in Christ. That's my identity. So I'm going to go about living my life and doing the things I want to do because I am saved and I am complete in Christ. And that is an, that is a, uh, completely false statement because the scriptures again and again say because of who we are, we have a certain responsibility to live a certain way. It comes from our identity. So I want to start by just going back to Ephesians 4.1, reminding us of this passage and the context before I want to look at in a little more detail at one phrase here. Ephesians 4.1 begins, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And that's only the first part of the sentence, but we're looking at some of these details. When Paul begins, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord. In English, we put therefore at the beginning, so we would read it, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. When Paul uses that word, therefore, he's pointing us back, as I indicated last time, to all that was said in Ephesians 1 through 3, as well as what's coming ahead. But he does this in inverse or reverse order. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, he is talking about the Christian walk, that we are to live a certain way. That word walk in uh, in Scripture has two meanings. One, what you see a lot of in the Gospels is just physically walking. But in the epistles, as well as in the Old Testament, uh, the concept of walking before God is a way of talking about how a person lives, how they conduct their lives, the, uh, the, uh, the traits that they have in the, in the way they live. And so Paul is drawing a conclusion from what he has said in 1 through 3, but he's introducing now this word walking, which is a dominant word used five or six times in the next three chapters. So 1 through 3 is focusing on or giving us a summary of what he's going to talk about in chapters 4 and 5 down through 6, 9, is how the believer is supposed to live, how we are to conduct ourselves as members of the family of God, as members of the body of Christ. And then when he gets to verses 4 through 6 and all of these uh, 
uh, staccato lines that he has there related to the fact that there is one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God who is uh, Lord over all, that that is reminding us of all that we have in the unity of the body of Christ in terms of our position in, in Christ. So the next thing I want to talk about, and this is what, what, what caught my attention this morning, and I was so running late getting here, I did not get my Bible out, which is, I think that must be a sin for a pastor, but I have so much in, anyway in my notes, but I don't always throw all the context in there, so if you'll pardon me, I'm going to pull, the, pull my text out because I don't want to miss some of this. All right, so we have Paul saying, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Now that, that line looks like a throwaway line, doesn't it? Let's get on to the really good stuff that he's getting ready to tell us how to live. We know he was a prisoner. Let's go forward. But let's think about this a little bit. Why does he feel that it's necessary to use this phrase? And it's different, as we'll see in just a second. It's different from the phrase that he used in 3.1. Now, we believe that the scriptures are inspired by God and inerrant down to every Jesus said, no jot or tittle will pass until all have come to, come to pass. And the word jot is really the Hebrew word yod, which looks like an apostrophe, and it's the letter Y. And the tittle is the little bitty part of a, of a letter that will distinguish it from another letter. For example, in English, we have the capital letter P. It's distinguished from a capital letter R by just that little stroke that is that leg that goes onto the P, and it becomes an R. And the difference between an O and a Q is that little line that just uh, breaks the lower right-hand side of the circle. And so uh, you see O and you see Q, there's a difference. They'll come up with different meanings, different words, just by changing a stroke. So we believe that in inerrancy, the inspiration of God extends down not only to the words or the ideas, but it extends to the specific uh, grammatical phrases because the difference between a word here and a word there can just be the difference between a present tense and a past tense. And so everything is important to pay attention to. And that God, the Holy Spirit, as the one who oversees the giving of Scripture, has a an, an very economic way of communicating. He doesn't, he's not verbose. And a lot of times there are little things that don't appear to us at first glance to have been all that significant. And then on further reflection, we realize that there If there's a difference, we need to ask the question, why is there a difference? And so last time I pointed out that in the beginning of chapter 3, which remember that's the last chapter in the first part of the book, Paul is also drawing an inference based on what he said in chapter 2. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Notice what he says there. It is the prisoner 
of Christ Jesus. Grammatically, that's a genitive. It's a genitive of possession. We'll get into some more details on that in a second. But in four one, he says he's the prisoner in the Lord, not of the Lord, as it's translated in the King James. The Greek is, as we'll see over in this slide, I, Paul, a prisoner, and the Greek is in curio. The Greek preposition in is a lot like our preposition in. It means location in a number of places. also indicates means or instrument. And in 3.1, he doesn't say in Christ, in the Lord. He uses Christ Jesus, and it's in the genitive. It is of Christ Jesus. So we should at least explore the question, is there, what's the difference and why is this important? And when we looked at this last time, I pointed out that uh, Paul is a prisoner, literal prisoner. So one question that you have to answer, is he talking about him being a literal prisoner, or is he talking about the fact that he is a prisoner in relation to his spiritual devotion to Christ, or is it something of both? that because he is Christ's prisoner, he is a prisoner in reality in Rome. And I think that is the third option. Each of these options then deteriorates in about four different ways in which to take these prepositions. Aren't you glad I'm not going to go through all of them? You end up with about, can end up with as least as many as 14 or 15 different interpretations just simply based on how you take each one of these prepositions. That's what I was spending my time working through this morning. Uh, and that's important for under, just understanding some of this and what, what the, the, the simple sense of this is. I was talking with a former professor of mine, not one with whom I would agree on a lot of things because I'd read an article he uh, he had written in the Dallas Seminary Journal dealing with the Day of the Lord, what we're coming up on in Thursday nights. And I, I, he used a phrase, and I didn't say, that really describes your writing. But I love the phrase, the complification of the simple. You like that? The complification of the simple. So I'm not trying to complicate anything. <laughs> so, it, but, but it's interesting how even these little things are Im- important as we focus on what Paul is saying here in terms of our identity in Christ. And so as we look at this, we recognize that, that we may have to three different ways in understanding prisoner, but the fact is he is a prisoner. Just to remind you of Paul's uh, life at this point, he had uh, been on three missionary journeys going through Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and Greece, and he had made uh, circles three times. And on the way, at the end of the third one, he wanted to go back to Jerusalem to be there in time to observe uh, a Passover And so he was in a hurry to get home, and he goes, he had made a vow, and he goes to the temple to fulfill this vow. Now, none of that has any problems with his Christianity or his theology, as I pointed out when we studied Acts, 
because there were a lot of things that you would do as a national ethnic Jew that had nothing to do with dealing, you know, with sacrificing when Christ had already been sacrificed or things of that nature. But when Paul shows up in the temple, he is recognized, and the rumor starts flying that Paul has brought a Gentile into the temple, which was forbidden. And so he was uh, the cause of a riot that started inside the temple precinct. And, of course, from the uh, Antonio Fortress there on the uh, what would be the north, uh, the northwest corner, they saw this riot. The soldiers come down, and they rescue Paul, and Paul is put under arrest, and he... Uh, they want to get him out of Jerusalem because he's such a contentious prisoner. I don't know, he's not a contentious prisoner, but being his presence is such a contentious thing for the Jews that they get him out, they take him to Caesarea uh, by the sea. And he's basically kept there for two years because the Roman governor didn't know what to do with him. And there were a couple of different governors and different people coming through, and he would bring Paul out to talk to everybody, impress everybody with his knowledge, and the governors were all impressed, but they didn't know what to do with him. Finally, Paul said, I'm going to appeal my case to Rome, because because he was a Roman citizen, he could appeal his case to Rome and to Caesar to to, uh, to make the uh, decision regarding his guilt or innocence. So he's on a, ship, on a ship going to Rome. It's shipwrecked. Eventually, he made it to Rome, and he's under basically house arrest for two years. And if you remember when I talked about this in chapter 3, when Paul started this, he's reminding them he's a prisoner, and he is a prisoner of Christ. That indicates possession, but it also indicates cause. And a, a genitive can have all these kinds of little nuances. And so he is saying, uh, he's Paul, the prisoner of Christ. And because he is serving Christ, that's, that's the nuance there. And that was why he was under arrest, because as serving Christ, he's teaching. This is what verses 2 through 13 were all about in, in Ephesians 3, is that he is proclaiming that there is now no more distinction between Jew and Gentile because we're all one in Christ. And it's that that upset the Jews in the temple, it is that for which he was arrested, and that is why he was on trial in Rome. So he is saying, I am the prisoner of Christ. I, I am his. He possesses me. He owns me. It's a gen, partially a genitive of relationship, but also of cause. I'm here because of Christ. And that that's important to understand, but that's not the meaning that he has when he says, I'm a prisoner in Christ. There, when he uses the phrase in Christ, which is a phrase used numerous times in Ephesians, it is a phrase that takes us to understand that at the instant of salvation, we were each identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, that we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we were raised together with him. That is our new position in Christ, and that is the work of God the Holy Spirit, and it is called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't perform it. It says Christ, remember what John the Baptist said to Jesus? 
about Jesus when he came down and was and he was about to baptize me says John said I baptize with water but the one who comes after me will baptize by means of the spirit and by means of fire he will baptize so Christ uses the holy spirit to identify believers with his death burial and resurrection because we're placed into Christ into the body of Christ then we all have that same identity. We are a new creature in Christ, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, all things are new. We are in Christ. So when Paul says that he is a prisoner in Christ, he is emphasizing something different from what he emphasized in one. Now, both of these have to do with his position. And we're going to talk about this a little bit. We have this position in Christ that is described with different metaphors in the Bible. It's described as the body of Christ. It's described as the bride of Christ. We are described in Ephesians 2 as uh, we went through that, that we're a new man, a new body, a new household, and a new temple. All of these are metaphors to help us understand that everything is different. We have this whole new identity. We have all, as as being in Christ, we have all this wealth that is put at our disposal uh, spiritually, all of these spiritual assets, and, and that's who we are. And for Paul, when he says, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus, is, he is speaking the, about the fact that he's a prisoner because of the message and the mission that Christ gave him as an apostle. And that was what he described by the term, the mystery that had not been revealed to anyone prior to God revealing it to the apostles and prophets after the day of Pentecost, that there would be this new entity, the church, and Jew and Gentile would be equal in the body of Christ. That's our new identity. And what's important about understanding this is that let me make up something. Now, this may have some some uh, appearance of being connected to something in reality, but like you read on the shows, it's it's not based on on any real situation. But it is actually I can think of two or three times when it's happened in history. So just because you think it's about today, it it's just a generic example. You have a mother and a father, and they have children. And as they have those children, their responsibility is to train those children to be able to live life as an adult. Whether you know it or not, your job as a parent isn't to give your children all of childhood experiences. Everything has to be directed to the fact you're preparing them to be able to leave home independent of you and function as a productive, responsible adult. And so they have several children, but we're going to focus on one, sort of like the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son, and you have two sons, one of whom is going to take to his training, and he will do well, and the other one will not take to his training quite so well, and he's going to end up being uh, quite uh, quite irresponsible. Now we're going to up the ante just a little bit and discover that mom and dad have a very high position. 
they happen to be the king and queen of a country. And so they have two sons. One son has been trained to take the position as king. He's the firstborn. And so he is taught how to live. He is taught all of the rules of protocol. He is taught all of the uh, ways in which he needs to dress and ways in which he needs to comport himself so that he will be successful as a ruling monarch. The other son, who's sort of the backup in case something happens to the first son, this is what happened with, with Henry VIII. His older brother, Arthur, was, was supposed to be the king, and he's the one who got all of the training and all of, uh, all of the benefits of being the firstborn son, but he died when he was 17 before he, his fa- father, Henry VII, died. And so suddenly the second son, who didn't have all of the training and everything else, was was the one who would become king, and we know him as Henry VIII. And there have been other examples of, of that kind of thing in, in history. So these two sons have a position. They're members of royalty. And as the firstborn and also as a secondborn who is a member of royalty, they are expected to live up to a certain example. They are expected to follow protocol. They're expected not to be an embarrassment to the nation. They're expected to educate themselves in all the different ways in which they are expected to live their lives. This is the church. We are in the household of God. We are royalty as members of the body of Christ, members of the bride of Christ, and we have been given the untold wealth of Christ in him. And we are to comport ourselves according to that position and that identity. And in our little parable, the older son takes to his training, but the younger son decides he doesn't want to have all of that, and so he just wants to do things his own way, and he becomes an embarrassment to everybody. They're both members of the, still members of the family. Nobody's kicked out. That's as it is with, with the Christian. One is walking worthy. The other one is not walking worthy. And he becomes a, an embarrassment uh, embarrassment to the family. And so this is what is what we get from these two phrases is in the phrase of Paul being a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It brings to the focus that he is a prisoner because of Christ, because of his pro- proclamation of the mystery doctrine, that now in Christ there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's the cause of his imprisonment. And so he phrases it that way, and it wraps around those 14 verses at the beginning of chapter 2. It has to do with who he is as an apostle and what his message was as an apostle. So we're still talking about everything related to that that identity of who he is as the called, because that's his calling is as an apostle, not for salvation, but as an apostle. And so he he is using that phraseology to bring that that focal point in that first part of chapter 3. But in chapter 1, he is talking about the fact that, that now he's going to talk about 
what our, our responsibilities are as those in Christ for how we live. And so he says that now, instead of using the phrase, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he says, I am a prisoner in Christ Jesus. This is his position in Christ as well as our position in Christ. And that entails a certain way of behavior. And we see that brought out in these two verses in 1 Corinthians. Now, we don't follow the standard of ethics for the Christian life in order to be saved. We follow it because in our salvation we are given a new identity And therefore, part of that identity is there's an expectation for us to live a certain way. However, God in his grace and loves know that we're going to have a very difficult time doing that. And so there's no penalty that if you fail, you're kicked out of the family. But that there is the constant, strong encouragement and admonition that we have to live up to who we are in Christ and God's not playing games with that either. This isn't something that, oh, well, but, you know, I'm really busy with my career. I'm really busy with all of my hobbies and all of the different organizations I'm involved with. I, I just don't have time to bury myself in the Word of God all the time. Well, you have to live consistent with who you are in Christ and not with who you are in the devil's world. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price. Now, who's he talking to here? Remember those lovely, spiritually mature, attractive, kind, generous, loving Corinthian believers? They were none of the above. They're self-absorbed. They're arrogant. They're committing you know, every known sin because they they're just haven't learned enough yet and they're not focused on their Lord and they're, they're just living like everybody else in their culture. And Corinth was a, it was a melting pot city that was a port town and every sin was available. And, and they were still committing all of those sins. There, from, from sodomy and homosexuality to adultery to lying to arrogance to uh, being divisive, all of these were part of their life, and they just weren't changing. That's 1 Corinthians 2 through 6. So Paul reminds them, you were bought with a price. Christ died for you. He paid the penalty. When you trusted in him, you are no longer your own. You are Christ's. He redeemed you, not with precious things such as silver and gold, but with his precious blood. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have a new owner. We didn't become neutral. So we are to live a certain way. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, he reminds them, he says, you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. Now, let's sort of put these two thoughts together. On the one hand, both of them have one thing in common. You were bought with a price. Because we're bought with a price, we're supposed to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. 
But if we don't, the alternative isn't that we have some sort of moral, ethical freedom and, woo, I'm going to be saved anyway, so I'm just going to do whatever my sin nature wants me to do and I'm not going to try to deal with it. We become a slave of men. So we have this illusion that if we have, if we're grace oriented, I can do whatever, which is an aberration, that I can sin with impunity. And you can't, because the reality is, as Paul describes it in Romans 6, we either live as a slave of God, a slave of righteousness, or a slave of our sin nature. There's no other option. And this is why Romans 6 is so important that we have to consider ourselves to be dead to sin. That means that we're not going to let sin dominate our lives, and that really starts with our mental attitude. It starts with the uh, the way in which we think, and not going into mental attitude sins because things don't go the way we think they ought to go. And see, that again takes us back into Romans. I mean, into uh, Ephesians chapter three, because when Paul started this, and he said, "For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles," he pauses, and it looks like he goes on a long rabbit trail from verse. Uh, verse 2 down to verse 13. And what he is doing is he is showing that I'm right where God wants me to be as a prisoner in Rome, that this isn't taking away from the gospel ministry. This isn't somehow hindering me from doing what God wants me to do. This is what God wants me to do. And when he comes to the end, he is going to say, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulations. Just because I'm going through suffering, you have to think correctly about suffering in your life. And that is that God has brought it into your life for a reason. One reason is that it may be divine discipline because of sin in your life, in which case you need to deal with that. You need to confess sin. You need to move forward and straighten things out. And other reasons he may bring sin into your life is because you're associated with somebody who is in rebellion against God, and they're under discipline, and you get suffering by association. That's not just because you're married to somebody who's not spiritually focused. It's not just because you happen to be uh, in, you're working for somebody and some companies involved in things that they shouldn't be, and God's taking them through a little uh, discipline. But it also applies when you have a federal government that is making a lot of bad, evil decisions, and those of us who are living in that nation are going to suffer by association. So there's a lot of different reasons for suffering by association, which sort of brings to mind the coming inflation, but I won't get distracted by that. So we have to handle it by trusting in God. Now, God multitasks so that when we're, even when we're suffering for discipline, we're suffering for blessing. God is going to use that to teach us and to mature us. And, and help us to grow. And that's what Paul is, is focusing on back in verse 3. So when he is saying that he is now a prisoner in Christ, he is bringing us back to the focus of our identity in Christ. And as I said last time, when he begins this, he says, I beseech you or I exhort you, I encourage you. Uh, this is the same thing he did in Romans 12.1. He's gone through the positional realities in Ephesians 1 through 3 and Romans. He walked us through 
all of the things God did to save us, to sanctify us. And then he says, in light of all of this, this is how you're supposed to, supposed to live. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your uh, reasonable service. We're not to, we, we didn't get saved so we can live life the way we want to. We, set, we got saved so that we can live out God's plan and purpose uh, in our life. And that has to do with what I brought up last time, that this is our calling. That's our vocation as believers. We have a new position, and that is to determine how we live. I bet there's not a person here who didn't have a job, maybe now, maybe prior, that you were expected to comport yourself a certain way because you worked for that company, and because you represented that company, you had to dress a certain way. I'm reminded of back in the early years when IBM uh, was first started, and I think this was true up through the 70s at least, if you worked for IBM and you were a man, you showed up in a business suit, you always wore a white shirt and a conservative tie. That was the dress code, and everybody had to follow it. So th- th- things have changed culturally, but I, I, in, the, in the church, we have those forces that are, that are part of the culture that are pushing our culture to greater and greater informality. Now, there's nothing wrong in informality per se, but there is a time and a place for informality, and there's a time and a place for formality. And we have to understand another historical principle. I think it was Oswald Smingler who observed that in cultures that are in advance, that the, the lower classes imitate the upper classes. And he goes through and demonstrates that all through history. But once a civilization goes into decline, the upper classes imitate the lower classes. And you can think back, most of you have probably seen some good historical dramas of the Victorian era. Even the prostitutes on the street tried to wear a hat and gloves. They may have been picked up in the gutter and they were dirty, but they tried to dress like the aristocracy dressed. Today we have people who dress like they're from the ghetto because we take our values from below and not from above. That's not how Christians are, are supposed to act. Christians, you know, I, I've always emphasized this, that when we come to church on Sunday morning, and I'm not saying everybody should wear business suit or tie or anything, but we are coming to worship God. We're not just going to a neighborhood Bible study. This is some, worship is something that is significant, and how we comport ourselves at church says a lot about what we think about the God we worship. And if you take a look at what is popular in Christianity today, people go to worship services like they're going to a rock concert, dressed the same way. It doesn't matter. Some of you haven't been at some of those churches, but that's, that's, that's pretty standard. And we just see this, this degradation of quality. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that we have to understand that there are high standards, high standards of behavior for those who are the called. And we'll get back to that uh, next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have provided a salvation that is not dependent upon anything that we do. And that we all recognize that that we still struggle with our sin natures. We still have a spiritual warfare. We fight with our sin nature, uh, with the world system, and with the devil. But we have you have already secured our victory, and we are in you. And as a result of being in you, we have this new identity as members of your royal family, as members of your body, as members of the bride of Christ, that we are to live consistent with that position. We know that we fail many times, and that's why your grace and your forgiveness is so necessary. It doesn't justify failure, but it makes us realize that when we fail, it's not devastating, but it's an opportunity for us to recover and to continue to press on to pursuing life as you would have us live it, that we have been bought with a price. We are uh, your servants, and that is our purpose in being in Christ is to serve you, and we need to live accordingly. Father, we pray for anyone listening, anyone here that's never trusted Christ as Savior, that's never realized, yes, indeed, Christ died for you. Fill in the blank with your name. He was thinking about each one of us and our sin when he was there on the cross and paid the penalty for every one of us so that that's not the issue. The issue is are we willing to trust him to save us? And the instant we say, yes, that's true, I believe Jesus died for me, that that instant God the Father and his omniscience knows exactly what you think, what you believe, and you're saved and you have eternal life and it can never be taken from you. And now is the opportunity to pursue the development of that life that we have in Christ. So, Father, we thank you for all these blessings that we have in Christ and your word that tells us about them. And we pray that you would strengthen us in our resolve to walk with you, to know your word, and to be able to glorify you in every area of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.